Just so you know, this just makes me, I love being with you all. Every one of you all, it is just such an honor to be here, to get to study together, um, to pray over you. You all are prayed for regularly and not just by me. Um, Todd prays for this class. Um, Michelle Castaño, who's not even with us here anymore, prays for you women every single week. Um, But it is just, it's wonderful to be with you all. So tonight we are on lesson nine. For me, this has felt like a very fast class. I can't believe we're already nine weeks in. Um, We've covered a lot of ground. We are only on verse 14, 14 tonight. But we've covered a lot of things, and we've been to a lot of places in the Word, and we'll be doing that tonight as well. But thank you for reading. Um, We're going to read tonight, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get going with the lesson. So if everybody will follow along either in your Bible or in your notes. We are ready. All right. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for the condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although for once you fully knew knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within our own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that... They do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand distinctly. Woe to them, for they walk Mm -hmm. in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love fest as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, 
wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of other darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, the malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last days there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you. Okay, let me pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name, and Lord, as I hear the letter again tonight, I just say thank you, God, thank you for this word to us, how timely of a letter this is for us today. Thank you for Jude's obedience in writing it, even though this was not his desired letter to write. God, we thank you that we have this tonight to go through. Thank you for the truth that you are going to show us tonight. God, I pray that our eyes be open, our ears be ready to hear, our hearts be ready to receive, because we know all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it is useful, Lord. So teach us tonight, admonish us tonight, encourage us tonight. God, whatever we need, I pray that you meet the needs of the women here through your word tonight. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. So as I said, we're on lesson nine. And if we look at our outline, tonight we're going to cover verses 14 through 16. And as you see in Jude's organization, we're going to see our second antitype to apostasy, which is Enoch. And then again, Jude is going to give us even more characteristics of apostates. He hits this over and over and over all throughout the letter, beginning, middle, and end. Why? 
because he wants us to be able to recognize this. He wants us to be able to see things that aren't right and recognize it, to hear things that aren't correct and recognize it. We are to be women of the word. We are to be people of the truth. And we need to be women that can discern error. So this is why he does this over and over and over again. So before we start, let me just make sure everybody understands what I mean here when I say an antitype to apostasy. We have, of course, this entire letter. It's all about apostasy and apostates what everybody is doing wrong, pretty much. And then we have two examples very strategically placed in this letter where um, Jude is telling us, okay, everybody's doing it right, but these are examples of somebody doing something right. And they're very specific and targeted examples of something correct that they were doing. And we'll be digging into that tonight. So, as we begin with these verses, let me read just these three verses again, and we'll get going. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now we've seen this intro in many, many verses so far. It was also about these. He's keeping us on track here because we're going to see next week a change. But right now we're still talking about these. Who are the these? The apostates, the people that have crept in unnoticed, the people that are hiding within the visible church, the shepherds feeding themselves. These are the hidden reefs. These are the wild waves. These are the fruitless trees in late autumn. All the things that we've heard about these people, he's reminding us, I'm, I'm talking about these people right now. So it was about these people that Enoch. So here again, we have our second antitype to apostasy. And like all the other historical examples that Jude gives us, he doesn't give us much information here. He gives us a little, not, much, not many details, not a lot of context here because Enoch would be very well known to the Jewish reader. He was actually a hero. So when he says Enoch and just gives us a little bit here, it's because there's an assumption that the reader knows who this man is and has the basic understanding they need to get what Jude is telling us here. So he says Enoch, and for us as a 21st century reader, we might not have all the information we need to understand this 
because there's actually more than one Enoch in the Bible. So Jude helps us out here with the next line. So Enoch, the seventh from Adam. This phrase makes it clear who Jude is actually referring because Cain also had a son named Enoch. And if you look in Genesis 4, 17 through 18, it says this, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. How interesting. No other mention of that anywhere, but how interesting that he gives us this, that Cain built a city and named it after his son. But again, this isn't the Enoch we are talking about because that would have been a direct descendant of Cain. And we're talking about an Enoch that is the seventh from Adam. Now, you know this, if you've been in this class before, I am a firm believer. All numbers are important. All names are important. Every single detail in the word of God is there by deliberate design, and it is there for a reason. Now, seven is a very important number scripturally. It is the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. It's the number of rest. It's an interesting number, and as you know, this is one of my favorite charts. We've gone through this many times, but um, worth just looking at again tonight because it's going to come up later. We'll need this in our letter, but we've talked about this before, this whole idea of time being set on a multiple of seven. That is a very interesting thing. I know if I was in control of all time, I would probably build it on a multiple of 10 because that's an easy number for me. Seven is not. Yet the whole world functions by this group of time of seven days. That's fascinating. That was not instituted by man. It was instituted by God because he created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. So this seventh day is a day of rest. And obviously, this chart is showing, and it's built on a couple of things we're going to be talking about tonight. But in 2 Peter 3.8, where it says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So... If that same little chunk of time that God has put into place so that we can get through life. Have you ever, have you ever even thought about that? Can you imagine if we didn't have weeks? If all we did was count days and we had to remember, oh, today is one million. I don't even know where we'd be, but that would be a lot. He divides time to help us get through life and to make sure we have times where we can rest. That is amazing. So in here, what we have a picture of is the time of history, all of human history. And from the time of Adam to the time of Abraham is 
2,000 years. I'll be showing you that tonight. I've never actually shown that to you, but we'll be looking at that tonight. That's why we're bringing this one back out again. From Abraham to the time of the cross, 2,000 years. We know from Revelation at the end of time, we have this very specific um, time called the millennial reign, which is 1,000 years that comes at the end of time before the new heavens and new earth. So if that is, like Peter says, day one and day two, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, day three and day four, 2,000 years, and then here's the day of rest, what we can extrapolate from that is possibly the day of the church, which we are in now, could be somewhere around 2,000 years. And that would mean all of human history gets wrapped up in this same unit of time. Absolutely amazing to think about. So, in this, again, seven is this number of perfection and completion and rest. And eight is the number of new beginnings. And a lot of fascinating things there. We know how many people were saved on Noah's Ark? Eight. The new beginning of everything. We know if we look at this chart again, at the end of the millennial reign, what do we have? What comes after the millennial reign? The new heavens and the new earth. So a time of new beginnings. So we have Enoch, the seventh from Adam. We know that the first minute mention of Enoch is actually in a genealogy that is recorded in Genesis 5. So we know, this is interesting as well, our first antitype of apostasy, which was Michael, when we looked at him, he was also mentioned in three different books. He comes first. We learn of him in Daniel, in Jude, and in Revelation. And now we have Enoch, who's also mentioned in three different books. Genesis 5, Hebrews 11, and what we'll be dealing with tonight in Jude. Does that mean something? Possibly. You know I probably think it does. I just don't know what. But things like this are very fascinating to me. So we're going to go through each of these passages to get the most, um, the broadest, most complete picture of Enoch that we can get. So we're going to be reading through the genealogy in Genesis 5, if you want to turn there or if you want to follow along in your notes. But genealogies are also always important. And usually, when we get to a genealogy, what do we want to do? Pass over it. Go through it really quick. What is this? Why is this in here? Well, it's in here for a reason. Every single name is there for a reason. Every single number is there for a reason. In this particular genealogy, we are going to see 10 specific lines. Now, we'll learn, and we've seen this before, 
typically genealogies in the Bible, they're representative rather than complete. That means they don't always list everybody, but there's a reason for the people they list or the re- a reason for why certain people are left out. Now, we're going to go through this, and I want you to um, be listening for two recurring passages all throughout. You can see in your notes, I helped you out with the recurring passages. They're highlighted for you. So, follow along as we read Genesis 5, 1 through 32. This is the book of the generations of Adam, when God created man and made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Oh, Seth, I'm sorry, I skipped one. 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. 
from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500, 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And of course, from them, later you will have the entire table of nations. So two repeated phrases here. Each of these people that were listed had other sons and daughters. Um, what this is showing us is he's, this is just giving us the one particular line that is taking us from Adam to Enoch and then to Noah. Genesis 1.28, God had commanded for humanity to be fruitful and multiply. And this is just showing that this was happening on the earth before the flood. People had very long lives, as you could see, and they were being fruitful and they were multiplying. The next recurring phrase that you see is, he died. Every one of them, except for one, died. In Genesis 2.17, God had also told them, because of sin, you would surely die. If you remember at the very beginning, God had laid out the rules. He said, do not eat of this tree or you will die. They did, and death entered God's good creation, and we have suffered death ever since and will still. Death, it, the Bible says death is the last enemy that will be taken care of. Until then, we will face death, and it is showing us here in this genealogy. Next thing we see, 150 years, 800 years, 930 years. These are very specific years of time. That is also very important because God, all throughout the scripture, gives us clues of why we are to take the Bible literally. He gives us very specific things that can prove his word. If we weren't supposed to take things literally or seriously, probably in this genealogy, we, we could just hear over and over, they lived a long time. They lived a long time. They lived a really long time. He is giving us very specific numbers for a reason. And in this, and you will be given this chart next week. I thought you were going to have it tonight, but that's okay. It will be small up here, but what I want you to see is I've got a chart for you, and it goes through the genealogy we just read, and it shows you when someone's alive, like Adam at 130, he has Seth, and then it keeps going and shows the time of their death, and this is really important because it's details like this that we can get great understanding of the Bible and of timing of things.
because if we look right here and we put this genealogy together from Adam, and I know you can't see this from your seats, to Abraham right here. Can anybody in the front row see that? How many years? 2,000 years. 2,000 years. So next week you'll get this, but it is interesting to see who was alive when other people were still alive. When we look at Noah, I mean, my goodness, look how many people were still alive. Um, Jared and Methuselah, um, all these people were still alive at the time of Noah. And it's This tells us a lot. Shows that a lot of these people were not walking with God. Absolutely. That shows a lot. A lot of these men who may have been righteous, but then the generations after them definitely were not. Um, so you will have this next week. This will be another one just to put in the front of your Bibles to refer to. As you're studying the Bible, all these little charts that you're getting, get them out and use them. It will just give you great understanding of the word, especially if you're more of a visual learner like me. These charts help me immensely. So we know we're supposed to take um, the Bible literally Seriously, we see this recurring pattern all throughout this entire genealogy of more sons and daughters being born, yet everyone is facing death until we see a break in the pattern. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So the pattern gets broken there, and we see Enoch does not die. And except for a very few people all throughout all human history, there will only be a few that do not die. And Enoch is one. Now, another thing very interesting that we can get in this genealogy, and this is all from um, Dr. Chuck Missler, and he's figured all of this out using the Hebrew names of everyone listed in this genealogy. I've brought this book in before, but this is such a great book to have on your bookshelves. It's a dictionary of proper names. The entire book, all it is, is every proper name in the Bible and what it means, whether it's Greek or Hebrew. You can learn so much from this, and I just keep it because when you're reading and you come across a name, just look it up and see what it means. Because Hebrew and Greek are different from English. It's hard for us to understand this because we have, like, I can go to the store and I can buy, like, a little name placard that says Mickey or Michelle, and it means this. Well, it really doesn't mean that. It really doesn't mean that because our letters do not have Meaning, they don't. Our letter M does not have meaning. In Hebrew and Greek, every single letter, every phoneme of sound has a meaning. That's why you can put 
all the letters that make up the word Abraham. And when you slide those letters together in Hebrew, it means something. And oh, when you take Abram and then God changes it to Abraham and he slides in one letter, the Anybody remember what that letter means? That was in the breath, the spirit. Oh my gosh. So here is Abram and God saying, oh, I just put my breath into you. I put my spirit into you. You are mine. And that exact same is what he put in Sarai's name to make it Sarah. Oh, names are so important. Whenever you're in the Bible and you see a name change, oh, then you really need to be paying attention. But it's because the letters themselves have meaning. So when we go through this list here, how we know these words mean what they mean is by digging into each of these Hebrew letters and putting them together. This is way beyond me. So I'm very thankful to people like this who know how to do this and bring the meaning out of these names. But very quickly, look what happens here. Adam, man. Seth, appointed. Enosh, mortal. Kenan, sorrow. Mahalel, the blessed God. Jared shall come down. Enoch, dedicated teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Lamech, the despairing. And Noah means comfort or rest. If you put that together, look what this genealogy is saying. Man is appointed mortal, mortal sorrow, death. But the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. Right in the genealogy, in the beginning of all scripture. Absolutely amazing. We get a glimpse of the gospel right there at the beginning. Another incredible thing that we can see in this genealogy if we look strictly at the name of Methuselah and we've mentioned this before but look at your notes here at Methuselah and I have it in there for you in the Hebrew letters again each one of those with a meaning the mat which is man um, and then we have death and then we have the sila to sin, to let go. When we slide all this together, it is saying his death will bring judgment. And what happens at the death of Methuselah? The flood. When Methuselah died, the flood came. And who lived longer than anybody else in the world? Oh my gosh, is that a picture of God's mercy? <laughs> when he dies, worldwide judgment is coming. 
and yet I'm going to live, let him live longer than any other person that's ever been alive. Oh, that is beautiful. People had ample opportunity to turn. Sometimes we can read things in the Bible and we can think, oh, that's so unfair. And why did this happen? And why did God do this this way? He is merciful and long-suffering. And we see this here in this delay of worldwide judgment. And ladies, guess what we're in right now? A delay of worldwide judgment. The second worldwide judgment is coming, and every day he delays it is for no other reason other than his mercy for others to come to know him. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but are are you getting this idea that genealogies are rich? Oh, there's so much in there. Names in the Bible are worth digging into. So from this first passage in Genesis 5, we are getting a glimpse into this man Enoch and who he is. Now let's go to the second place where he's mentioned, which is Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. And I'm sure this is a chapter we are all very familiar with in the Bible. This is often called the Hall of Faith. And we see that Enoch is mentioned here. And and don't forget, this entire chapter is summed up in the words. These are people of whom the world is not worthy. Can you imagine having your name on that list? World's not even worthy of you. So what did he do to be on this list? Well, for your first connection here this week, a very fruitful exercise. And I know we did this recently at church, so it will be a review and it will be a great review for you. Read through all of Hebrews 11, write down the names of everyone listed and write down why they are there. It will always tell you. You are gonna see some in there that are just so obvious. You'll see Noah and you'll see Moses and Abraham and um, Joseph and David. You'll probably see some surprises in there. People like Rahab and people like Gideon, uh, people like Samson, some real surprises. And then you'll also find some people in there that I think you will find very, very encouraging. And to me, Enoch is one of the most (laughs) encouraging people to read about because of this passage. So let's look at it. So this is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
So a couple things we need to pull out here. He was commended. In Greek, this is martyreo. It means to utter honorable testimony or to give a good report. And then as having pleased God, this means to be well-pleasing. Strong's definition is to greatly or to gratify entirely. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look up a word and it uses the same word as what I'm looking up, it frustrates me a little bit. When I see having pleased God and then it says well-pleasing, well, that doesn't tell me very much. So one thing you can do when that happens is take that word, whether Hebrew or Greek, and look at other places that it's used in the word. So this word where, um, where it says, no, I got ahead of myself. Okay, we're going to put this together with Genesis 5. Same exact thing happens here. It says, he walked with God. And when I look that up, uses the same word again. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, it means to walk. So, not very informative there. So, if you take this word, and you can do this with the other as well, look up other places in Scripture where you see it. So, the first place I found it is Genesis 2.14, and it says this very early. This is Genesis 2 here, talking about creation. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows, that's the same word, Halak, east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So this word, if you picture a river flowing, think of that. It implies this continuous movement alongside. So when I think of that and think of Enoch, what was he doing? Oh, this continuous movement in step with God, staying within boundaries, but always moving. So then when I see that, I'm like, oh, I I can get that. I can get my head around that. I can get my head around why that was so pleasing to God. So Enoch makes it into Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, because he has faith in God, which we know means he puts his trust in God. That's what faith is. Oftentimes we're told that it's a noun. It's actually a verb. It, the faith itself is not what is important It is the object of that faith that is what is important. He put his faith in God. His trust was in God. People operate in faith all the time. You, I guarantee, you sat down in that chair tonight because you had faith that it would hold you up. That means you put your trust in that chair. So faith is all about the object of the faith not the faith itself. So here we have a picture of a man trusting in God, putting his trust in God, and a life characterized 
by walking in continuous movement alongside of him. And that pleased God. This, to me, is one literally of the most encouraging passages that I read. Because when I read about the other people, many of the other people in that chapter, I'm like, these people led entire nations out of slavery. They had Joseph, of course, came up with the idea to save all of Israel. Um, you had the greatest king ever in the history of Israel. I mean, one incredible person after another doing amazing things. And yet here's a man who has faith in God and walks with God. I can do that. You all can do that, and that is pleasing to God. We can lead lives that are pleasing to God with this as an example. So now let's get back to Jude, where we'll see the last mention of this um, historical figure, Enoch. So Jude 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. So here we see that this man of God, the one who trusted God and lived this life flowing alongside him, was doing, what was he doing that caused Jude to offer him as an example of someone doing the right thing in a letter full of people doing everything wrong. What was he doing? Prophesying, proclaiming, that's what that means. So here we have a pre-flood prophet, and we're going to learn he's actually the first man for which we have a recorded prophecy. Now, we have other prophecies. God himself gave the prophecy. There will be the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's a prophecy, but that was given by God. If you remember, we learned several weeks ago with Abel, he was a prophet. How do we know that? Luke tells us that. It's in the gospel of Luke, but we don't have what he prophesied anywhere. It's not written in scripture. The very, or it's not written anywhere to my knowledge. Here we have the first recorded prophecy by a man. Do you think that might be important, what he's saying? Mm -hmm. So what is he prophesying? What is he saying? Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Get this, Enoch is prophesying the second coming of Christ before the flood and thousands of years before the first coming. And in the second coming, he warns of the coming judgment. So several key points in Enoch's prophecy here. 
Number one, he's telling us the Lord is coming back. Number two, he's not coming back alone. We learned that in Revelation. Who's coming back with him? Us and angels. We got that in Revelation. And he is coming back to execute judgment. So all of these three points that are in this prophecy are reconfirmed all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, in regards to his coming. What Jude is bringing to light here is really when Enoch was saying this. Remember, before the flood. So if we go back to this chart, Enoch was right here prophesying the second coming of the Lord, the end of human history. And he is warning people of judgment. Now, we know that the time before the flood had become so horrifically wicked that this is said of it in Genesis 6, 5. says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What an awful time that would be to have lived in. And yet during this time, Enoch is proclaiming that a time is coming where judgment will be executed on all the ungodly and all the ungodly will be convicted. So in a time of horrific evil and great apostasy, Enoch was proclaiming truth. And ladies, that's the whole purpose of Jude's letter. This is what he's telling us at the beginning. Apostasy is here. The world is full of apostasy, full of apostates. Even the church is full of apostasy and apostates. And what is he commending all believers to do? Contend for the faith. Fight for the truth. This is the whole purpose of the letter, and this is what Enoch was doing before the first worldwide judgment. We are to be the ones doing that before the second worldwide judgment, which is coming. So the first recorded prophecy by man in Scripture is about the second coming of the Lord. Very interesting the last recorded prophecy by a man, John, in Revelation twenty-two twenty, is also about the second coming of Christ. And he says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So this fact alone, first prophecy, first recorded prophecy, Last recorded prophecy about the second coming of Christ and judgment should highlight for us the importance of keeping this truth in front of us and talking about it with others because that's what Enoch was doing. 
That's what that means. He was talking about it. He was telling people. He was warning people. Yet how often today do we hear the gospel presented without a mention of the second coming? How often do we maybe share the gospel without a mention of the second coming or of judgment? His return and the reason for his return is integral to the gospel. And if that's not being shared, it's not the full gospel. Some of the gospel, ladies, is so easy to talk about. Oh, it's so easy to say that God loved us so much, he sent his son. And he did, that's true. And his son came as a man. And he lived a perfect life. And because of that, he could be the perfect sacrifice for us so that we can be redeemed and reconciled to God. He died for us. He loves us. Oh, that is so easy to talk about. And that is so easy to tell people. Some of this is not very easy to talk about. Some of this is hard to share with people. But if we are only saying that, we are not giving people a full picture of the gospel. The gospel is also, he's returning. He is returning for those who belong to him. And he's coming to judge those who are not. That is serious stuff that a world, a dark, evil world needs to know. The decision's up to them. They get to decide whether they accept it or not, whether they want it or not, just like you did. But they need to know it. And just like Enoch, we need to be talking about it. We are not doing anybody any favors if we are sharing the gospel and not telling them the full, the full picture of human history. Yes, God loves them. Yes, God will forgive them. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. there there's expectations. There's expectations placed on God on his creation. We are accountable to God And he is coming back to judge people according to the word that he has given us. So, with all that being said, an application for you all to really think about this week in light of all that. Do you think it's accidental that this has been a point of scoffing ever since? What do scoffers scoff about? His return and judgment. His return and judgment. But the Bible not only teaches both of these truths, it even warns us that this is going to happen, that scoffers will come scoffing about this very thing. So let's look at a passage in 2 Peter. We'll go through this together. We go to 2 Peter a lot during Jude because these two letters are so close. 
So either turn there in your Bibles or you can follow along on your notes. But I'm going to read all of chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, because we see a perfect picture of what is happening. So this is Peter. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. Same word that Jude uses in his intro. In both of them, I am right or I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. And again, if we look at our chart here, here's days one, two, three, four. When are the last days? The days between the first ascension of Christ and the second. This is the last days. We are in the last days. The last days started here. This is why when we read in the Bible and it says people in the first century were talking about the last days, they were in the last days. This is it. We're still in the last days and the last days will continue until his return. So he says, in the last days, um, scoffers will come with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Again, this is exactly what Jude is going to say later. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Is that true? No. What a lie. That is an absolute lie. Because... Things have not continued the same since creation. What happened after Methuselah? A worldwide judgment, a worldwide flood. The earth isn't the same as it was since creation. Not at all. This is why the story of the flood is so denigrated, so questioned. It's taught as a myth. It is told that could never happen. Yeah, there might be a flood, but if there was a flood, it was probably a local flood. Couldn't be a worldwide flood. Why? Because if that happened, it can happen again. There was a worldwide judgment from God due to evil and people don't want to see that because it means there is accountability to life. Look at this next verse, verse five. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So here we see a deliberate overlooking of this truth. Deliberately done. 
but by the same word. <laughs> Ladies, the same word that tells us about the flood is the same word that tells us about the next judgment that is coming. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So we see the flood is a type of coming judgment. And we've gone through this before, and I won't spend a lot of time on it, but I know you have this in your notes from previous classes. But if we look at the ark, and if we look at the flood story as a type of coming judgment, there is so many things that we see here. God gave people an escape from that judgment, gave them an escape. We know Noah preached for a hundred and twenty years while he was building the ark. And the Bible tells us he was preaching. He was preaching during that time. Other people, it looks like other people could have gotten on that ark. How many went on there? Eight. If you read carefully in that story, you see that ark was made one door. Oh, there's only one way to escape judgment. Only one. If you read further still, you see who closed that door. It wasn't Noah. Noah was put on that ark and it said God closed the door. God closed the door of the ark. And at that point, decisions were made. There was no going back. People were on the ark. They were on the ark. People that weren't, were not. Now, you know what I believe. I've shared this before. I bet a whole lot of people probably got saved in the floodwaters. I really believe we'll meet people in heaven that called out to God after that. But man, they still had to go through it. And then we know at the end, we see this at Revelation. There is a day a specific date. We don't know when it is, just like Noah didn't know the exact day of the closing of that door. But there is an exact day coming where this time of grace, freely just being able to go to God and accepting salvation, that gets closed and judgment comes. And we saw that judgment all throughout Revelation in the tribulation. Are people able to get saved during the tribulation? Absolutely. A lot of people will. But we sure should not be women who think, okay, they'll get saved then. I won't talk to them now. That will be the most horrific time ever to happen on planet Earth. And God's given us the honor of sharing his salvation the way out of that with others. That's what we get to do. That's why we're here. That's why we don't get saved and immediately go to be with the Lord because he's got a job for us to do and this is the job that we are to do. Um, I only mentioned a couple of things. You all, there, there are so many connectors here. But this again is showing why 
this idea is scoffed at, why it is deliberately overlooked because it is pointing to another truth still in the future. So then verse eight, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. This is on our chart that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. We saw that picture in the first judgment with Methuselah living 969 years. And now we see that same patience again. It has been close, not quite, but it's been close to 2,000 years since the ascension of the Lord. And all that time, salvation is open. Grace and mercy is available to avoid the wrath and to avoid this judgment. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? This is what that knowledge should do to us, you all. When we see judgment is coming, it should change the way we live. We should be women who live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the world that was destroyed the first time by water will be destroyed the second time by fire. And at this point, the godly have the promise of a new heavens and new earth. When this earth gets destroyed, believers have a new heaven and a new earth waiting for them. The ungodly, again, as we saw, have judgment waiting for them. The great white throne judgment. The return, the second return of Christ is either the greatest day yet (laughs) or it is the absolute worst simply based on where someone stands with him. It is the best or it is the absolute worst. 
we got to keep these things in front of us. And I'm speaking to myself here. We can get so caught up in our lives. <laughs> oh, the daily things we got to do and chores we have and taking care of the kids and cleaning the house and just a million different things and planning this and doing that, that we forget the main thing. This is the main thing. This is the main thing. Every single person who has ever lived, who will ever live, or who is alive today will be in one of two places at the end of human history. That's the main thing. And this reminds me, I need to be talking about this more. I need to be keeping this in front of me more and sharing it with more people. Um, Another passage that connects with this in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 12. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, because again, we saw he's not coming back alone. He's coming back with the saints and he's coming back with angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Wow, what a thing to pray over other people. What an incredible thing that we can be praying over others. Again, this is the future of the world for everyone who has ever lived. So verse 15, he is prophesying that the Lord is coming back with his 10,000s to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So to execute judgment and to convict the ungodly, here we see again his return is bringing judgment to the ungodly. That word execute in Greek, poeo, is to carry out. He is going to carry out the wrath of God, judgment on the earth. And then this word judgment and Multiple times we've gone over this word because it can be used in different ways. So you have to get the context here because judgment isn't always in reference to something bad. Sometimes judgment is simply making a decision, rendering a decision. A judge makes a rendering of a decision. We judge all day, every day, and pretty much every decision we make. We have two choices. We judge which is best and we go with it. That's judgment. This judgment here, Croesus, is sentence of condemnation 
or a damnatory judgment based on the context here. And he is going to convict the ungodly. This means to call to account, to chastise, and to punish. And who is this happening to? All the ungodly. Jude uses this word four times in this sentence. Ungodly, 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 ungodly. And from the very beginning, we talked about this as well. Believers with the Holy Spirit of God in them are not the ungodly. We may do an ungodly thing every now and then, but we are not ungodly if we have God in us. Sometimes we can read a letter like this and get kind of, oh my gosh, am I one of these people? Am I doing these things? Um, No, a true believer cannot apostatize because that's the whole difference. This is the ungodly, not the godly. We know godly people can do ungodly things. I have done far more than I care to talk about. You may have to, but we are not the ungodly if we have given our life to him and if we have surrendered to him. So very quickly, three foundational truths about just um, judgment. And this we've gone over again before, but let's just hit them very quickly. Number one, God never judges without warning. Never, never does he judge without warning. He is a fair God. And not much sends me over the edge more than hearing somebody say that he's not fair when we see things like we've seen today with his patience. Again, first written prophecy, Enoch was talking about the second coming of the Lord and the judgment that is coming before the flood ever came. People have had ample time ample time. We see it in Noah again. He was preaching for 120 years. When we went through the story of Lot several weeks ago, remember Lot, he was allowed to go out and get everybody in. He didn't do a very good job, but um, people were warned of coming destruction. We see that in Jonah. This wasn't... This wasn't even a city where there were any believers and God still sent somebody to them saying, hey, wake up, judgment is coming. And they did, they did wake up. And that entire city, if you remember from the king down, got saved. They were putting sackcloth on the animals. I mean, that was crazy (laughs) repentance and change. All of the Old Testament prophets, all of them, They are warning of judgment and the day of the Lord that is coming. And then in the New Testament and for new believers, we have the full counsel of God beginning to end. God, if God's judgment comes as a surprise to anybody, it's because they're not paying attention or it's because they're refusing to hear truth. 
He lays it all out for us. We just went through Revelation. He lays it out in great detail what is happening. He gives it all to us pretty much. It's right here. He is not bringing judgment without warning. Second, we saw this. God is patient and long-suffering where judgment is concerned. Again, we see Methuselah, and we can look at our chart now and see 2,000 years almost have gone by, and the final judgment has not come. Could it come soon? Absolutely. It could come very soon, um, which is why, well, I've said that enough. Um, It could come very soon. Three, God offers a means of escape from his judgment. Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord in true repentance will be saved. Anyone, anyone. Can even an apostate get saved? Absolutely, if they do this, call on the name of the Lord and repent. They can be saved as well. But anyone who refuses the salvation of the Lord will receive a just judgment from him. I wish we could go back into Revelation into the white throne because you see in that passage how this judgment is just. So I would just commend you to review that or um, read it for the first time, the great white throne judgment. So in this next and final verse tonight, verse 16, here Jude's going to give us even more characteristics of how these people operate, what they're doing, and he highlights some of these deeds of ungodliness that he's talking about. So he says this, these, again, same word, these are the apostates, they are the grumblers, the malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So these three words here, grumblers, malcontents, and following their own sinful desires, they're very reminiscent of all the examples that Jude has given us of apostasy. Really, All six of the historical examples, we could pinpoint these things, but the ones that really scream out to me, well, the grumblers, the people of Israel wandering through the wilderness, they had just been delivered from Egypt. And what were they doing? Grumbling and complaining. Oh, take us back to Egypt. Oh, the garlic was so good. Take us back. Um. Balaam, Balaam was warned not to proceed by a donkey. And what does he do? Beats his donkey. Malcontents, these are your complainers, not satisfied with their life or their position or the way God does things. It can be anything. People can be malcontent. That means without contentment about anything. The angels we saw in Genesis 6, they weren't content with the place that God gave them. 
they had a very high place. And they said, oh, no, we want something else. Um, Korah, a Levite, a person of very high rank and position. He wasn't happy with it. He wanted to be Moses. He wanted to be Aaron. He wanted to be the top dog, the leader. He wanted to be the high priest. Malcontent, not happy, not satisfied. Following their own sinful desires. These are your rebels. These are the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Cain. People who follow their own sinful desires. Some of those examples we saw, they follow them right into gross sexual perversion. Some of them followed their sinful desires right to murder. But they're following their own sinful desires. So as an application again tonight, and we just said this, so please remember because when I look at this list, I see myself in every one of these things. I have grumbled. I still grumble. I have been unsatisfied. And I know I should be content in the lot that God has given me. (laughs) I have too often followed my own sinful desires instead of doing what he has told me to do. I have been all of these things. But I am not an apostate. I am a person with God, surrendered to God, walking on the path of sanctification. I do not excuse these things at all. I recognize they can still catch me up. So there's things we need to be doing so that we don't do these things. Doesn't mean Because we do these things, we are led to eternal destruction. That's the path of the apostate. But can we do some of these things and actually destroy some things in our own life now? Yeah, we can face destruction without facing eternal destruction. We can have destruction here. And man, if we're not happy, if we're not satisfied, if we're always grumbling and complaining about our husbands and our kids and our jobs and our this and our that, and we can destroy things. We can still follow a sinful desire. So just take a little stock of your life this week. Think through these things. Again, doesn't mean you're an apostate. Just means you can have some things that catch you up. So, Be careful, be on guard, be watching for these things in your life. And remember, the key to all of it is contentment, all of it. You're not going to murmur and complain if you're content. You're certainly not going to be malcontent if you're content. You're not going to follow sinful desires if you're content in what the Lord has given you. So we have got to learn and practice contentment. Next thing he says of these people, they are loud-mouthed boasters. These people are loud, drawing attention to themselves. Apostates get their worth by the attention they obtain. What a contrast to 1 Peter 3, 4. And this is especially to women. So listen up here, ladies. Instead, it, meaning 
your beauty should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and, what's that word? Quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. We shouldn't be always trying to bring attention to ourselves by what we look like or how we talk or what we say or trying to get everybody's attention. That it's not what we're supposed to be doing. Then it says these people are boastful. We saw this very clearly last week. These are people of empty promises. They promise something, but they can't deliver anything because they're empty. They're empty themselves. And remember Proverbs 25, 14 says, like clouds and wind without rain. So something that should be promised, a cloud should be bring rain, is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Promising one thing, not being able to deliver. So these are loud mouthed boasters, boasters. These are people showing favoritism to gain advantage. We saw a little bit of this last week when we talked about the love feast. Remember there were divisions among these fellowship meals where certain people were maybe allowed something and other people not. This is called divisions. And, um, and he's warning that apostates show favoritism to gain advantage. Now, this could be, or these are people who show favoritism to the wealthy, the well-known, the powerful people because of what it gets them. Being in association with these people may garner for themselves popularity, renown, wealth, power, and prestige. This week and during this letter, people send me all kinds of stuff or, oh, have you seen this? Have you watched this? I was watching a documentary on a church um, in New York City, and I don't know if this still happens today because the pastor who was there at the time is no longer there, so I don't know if it still happens. But when he was there, I'm not kidding you when I say, like uh, like the red carpet, there would be the ropes across the first few rows of the church for the movie stars and the basketball players that came to church. It was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. This is favoritism to gain advantage. Favoritism to gain advantage. I'm not going to read through all these. Please read through these um, on favoritism because one thing that becomes very clear with these passages is that often favoritism begins with flattery. Empty flattery that one person can say to another to try to gain something or earn something or garner something from them. And there is no place in the body of Christ for partiality or favoritism. Any teachers 
should be teaching to impart knowledge and not for anything else. That's it. That's why you teach. If that's not why you're teaching, don't teach. James warns of that. You shouldn't even want to be a teacher because they face a harsher judgment. Leaders, preachers should be leading people to Jesus, not themselves. If you see people out there and they're trying to get followers for themselves, be careful. Watch, dig a little bit. You should be gaining some discernment through this letter. You've got to be careful who you listen to, who you watch, who you read, even what music you listen to. Not everything that's labeled Christian is Christian. It's simply not. It's simply not. You've got to be discerning. So these things are telltale signs of apostasy. So remember... These, again, are the same individuals that were described as shepherds feeding themselves. And this is the whole point. This is the whole point of apostates within the church. Sometimes people apostatize and leave the church. Again, that's their choice. They reject the truth. They don't believe the truth. They deny the truth and they leave. But the ones who do that and stay within the visible church, there's always a reason for it. And they're usually shepherds feeding themselves, people gaining some kind of advantage, staying within the walls of the church. So I am going to stop there, and we'll do this last page next week. So make sure, bring your notes back. And... um, Let me pray and you can leave. And then if anybody has questions, I'm happy to answer them. Father God, again, we thank you for this evening. Lord, I thank you for all the women that are here. God, thank you for bringing them here tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, to see things in your word that maybe we haven't seen before and to learn from it. God, if we are here to study a letter like a Jude, I think it means we are women who want to understand your word. Because this is a tough letter. Some of it is tough to hear. So Lord, we ask that you help to keep us all teachable. Help us to be women, Lord, who put our faith in you above all else or nothing else, Lord, like Enoch. God, help us to be women who walk with you, who go in the direction you're going, who stay within the boundaries that you've given us. God, help us to be that, like Enoch was. And God, mostly, help us to be women who boldly speak truth in times of evil. We can only do this with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we thank you, Father God, for the Holy Spirit in our lives. All this we ask and pray in the precious and powerful name of Jesus, who came the first time to save us and the one who is coming back for us. Come, Lord Jesus, come.
Amen.